continuing in our Second Samuel series. Um, next week we'll pick back up in our morning series in Luke. Title of the sermon: Principles and Leadership. Leadership is a God-given responsibility of great importance, be it the God-ordained role in the family or the God-ordained role in government or the God-ordained role in the church. Each, each institution that God has given us has also been given leaders. And we know from Scripture that leaders are answerable to God for their actions. Now, historically, in most cases, God-ordained leadership positions have not really been chosen by those whom these leaders lead. Historically, a king was given the right to rule through succession. And historically, most governments have been monarchies or empires or, or something of the like. Historically, a priestly line has typically borne the responsibility of ministering unto the people rather than what we would typically understand today as, as a, a pastor in a church and such. And obviously, a child rarely has the opportunity to choose, in any context, their parents, with the possible exception of maybe perhaps some, some adoption scenarios and such. But things are very different in the Western world, in these United States. In, in the Western world, we have been given a privilege, um, a unique and blessed privilege that, that most places have not been given. We have the privilege of of choosing our leaders in the country. You have the privilege of choosing your leaders in, in a church setting many times, whether through choosing the church you would go to or whether that's through, in, in the case of churches like ours, the membership actually being the ones who are responsible to choose the leader that they have over them in the church. One must become a student of history to be able to appreciate just how rare this is. And tonight I'd like to talk about leadership and its connection to the concept of principles. I do this at a timely junction uh, in our nation's history as we are choosing the next uh, president. I, I'm not intending to go in that direction particularly this evening. Uh, it's not something that, that I, I typically do, but the principles that we'll lay down about leadership and principles will be just as applicable to what, we're, what our nation is going through right now as to any other concept of leadership that we can think of in our lives. My hope is that the lessons we learn this evening through our time together today will help us understand not just what makes a good leader, but more importantly, and this is really the thrust of the message this evening, how you can become good leaders. God willing, sitting among us this evening are leaders and future leaders. Not just leaders of homes, but leaders of churches. Perhaps leaders in the government. And so you need to know how to be a good leader. And this evening, we're going to look at one of the particular marks of a good leader through the life of David. But also, based upon the freedoms and the blessings that we have in this country, you need to know how to choose good leaders so that you can put your effort behind those who are good leaders when opportunities arise. So through the example of King David, we're going to explore one of the characteristics of leadership which is absolutely indispensable and which, if present in a man, will go a long way toward making him a good leader, even in the imperfect state in which we all find ourselves. We pick up this evening in verse 1 of chapter 4. The Bible says this, and when, and when Saul's sons heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble, and all the Israelites were troubled. So we, we pick up right where um, chapter 3 left us. If you recall last week in chapter 3, Abner, the captain of Ishbosheth's host, had been killed by Joab in revenge for killing his brother Azahel. David disavowed any part of that murder, and yet the damage had indeed been done. Now Ishbosheth is is greatly troubled. He's he's dismayed. He 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 is concerned, and he's concerned in part in particular because Ishbosheth, as we we consider from the weeks prior, 
He was not a great leader. He was not a warrior leader. Uh, he was not a man of charismatic personality. He trusted Abner, the, the, his general, the captain of his host, for that. And so Abner's death was absolutely demoralizing to him. And not only to him, but the text tells us that all of Israel was troubled by Abner's death. And we continue in verses 2 and 3, and the text tells us, And Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other was Rechab. The sons of Rimmon, a Baerothite, of the children of Benjamin, for Baeroth was also reckoned to Benjamin. And the Baerothites fled to Gitaim and were sojourners there until this day. So uh, we read here about these bands that... Saul, that Saul's son Ishbosheth had, uh, captains of bands. These bands would have been lightly armored troops, meant to be very mobile, in and out operations. So we're not talking about a big army that's meant to take a stand. We're talking about the small, very mobile units. And he had two captains, and these captains would have no, no doubt been men of, of leadership and of influence in the, the nation of Israel. Name of one man was Baana, the name of the other was Rechab. These two men we know were brothers, sons of a man named Rimon, and they were Benjamites of the city of Baroth. Baroth was originally a city that was given uh, before Israel entered into the land, a city given to the Hivites, but had been given unto and occupied by the Benjamites at the time that Israel conquered the land. So now the Benjamites are living there. And recall, Ishbosheth is a Benjamite. Saul was a Benjamite. So they are of the same tribe. They are, they are brothers in that sense, uh, not, not blood brothers, but they are of the same tribe, of the same family in Israel. Baana, Rechab, and Ishbosheth. And notice the text mentions that the original Baarathites were not destroyed, but they fled. And they fled to a place called Gitaim. In fact, the inhabitants of Baaroth had been among the inhabitants of the land who had deceived Israel into making a covenant so as not to be destroyed by them. Uh, you remember when Joshua entered the land, a group called the Gibeonites came and made a, a, a deal with them and said, we're from a, a faraway land and we want to make a truce with you. And Joshua said, well, they look like they're from a faraway land, so we'll do this. But in fact, they were not from a faraway land. They had deceived Joshua and the host. They were from the immediate land, but now they'd made this covenant. Well, Baeroth was one of those cities who made that covenant with Joshua. So those inhabitants fled to Gitaim, which we know very little about in history. And the city was occupied, the city of Baeroth, was occupied instead by the Benjamites, of whom Rimmon was one with his sons, who became the captains of these raiding bands, Baana and Rechab. Continuing in verse 4, we read, And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So we're introduced to another man here, and this is a son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, and his name is Mephibosheth. The text tells us that he was five years old when the Battle of Gilboa took place. The Battle of Gilboa was likely, it was at least um, seven years prior, probably eight maybe years prior to this point. And at that time, the people, having been overrun by the Philistines, fled the city. And as they fled the city, Saul and Jonathan both having been killed in that battle, the nurse of Mephibosheth picked him up, he's five years old, to run with him out of the city, and something happened. In her haste, he fell, likely suffered some sort of spinal cord injury, and he was no longer able to walk. He became paralyzed from the waist down. Now, the text tells us nothing about his hands. Uh, we, we, as far as we can tell, it was just from the waist down. Now the question becomes, why mention him here? Because he's not really going to come up again in this, in this chapter. As a matter of fact, he's not going to come up again for several more chapters. Why are we introduced to Mephibosheth here? We might consider his mention to be out of place, but indeed it likely is not. 
as the writer is attempting to establish the fact that Saul's posterity, that Saul's children and grandchildren are waning. Saul died. Saul's son, Jonathan, died in the battle several years prior. His other son had also died in that battle. Ishbosheth did not go out to battle, whether he was too young or whether he was just not the warrior type, we don't know, but he did not go out to battle, so he was made the next king. That's it for Saul's sons. Saul's grandchildren, we only read of one, and that's Mephibosheth, and he is lame. And what that means is that he would be regarded as unfit to rule. So if Ishbosheth dies, there is no more posterity of Saul to sit on the throne. Mephibosheth would not be allowed to rule because he was lame in that culture. Ishbosheth is the final eligible man to sit on the throne of, uh, of Saul. And that is why Mephibosheth is mentioned here. And that's why it's so important that it's mentioned here so that we can know that Mephibosheth is ineligible to become the next king. Now we move on quickly past Mephibosheth in the text and focus our attention once again on Baana and Rechab in verses 5 and 6. And the sons of Rimmon the Baarathite, Rechab and Baana, went and came about to the heat of the day, about the heat of the day, excuse me, to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. And they came thither into the midst of the house, as though they would have fetched wheat. And they smote him under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. These men, as servants of Ishbosheth, would have not been regarded as a threat in Ishbosheth's own house. So they entered into Ishbosheth's house at the heat of the day under the pretense of getting some wheat, perhaps enough to feed the men whom they led. And uh, as they entered, the text tells us, uh, in the heat of the day, Ishbosheth was lying in his bed. Not uncommon among many cultures during the heat of the day for people to find shade and to take a nap, right? It's called a siesta uh, in, in Mexico, and, and we find it in many different cultures where in the very hottest part of the day, you didn't do work, you didn't stay outside, you went and you found some shade, and you took a nap, and then you got back to work once the hottest part of the day was done. Uh, that's one of the things that not having air conditioning will do for you, right? So, so his body is protected from the hottest part of the day. He's in. It renews his vigor for later on. He's taking his rest in this part of the day. So these men enter into his house at this part of the day under the pretense of getting wheat, and the scriptures tell us that they killed him. Now, we've seen two times now in the book the concept of killing a man by smiting him under the fifth rib. It was a Hebrew saying that he was smit, smitten under the fifth rib. This implies uh, being stabbed in the abdomen area, and it would doubtless injure several vital organs without suffering the potential setback of hitting a rib. And so that's why they would stab a man under the fifth rib, and that's why it's stated the way it is. Well, we receive more detail about this event in verse 7. The text tells us, For when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him, and took his head and gat them away through the plain all night. So they killed Ishbosheth, but after they killed him, it says that they beheaded him and they took their head with him. Uh, we don't need to get into all of the, the grisly details of why they might have done that, but um, here's what they needed. They needed proof that Ishbosheth was dead, but they didn't, they needed a quick escape, which means they couldn't be hauling his entire body around. So they, they chose the second best option, which was to just take his head with them. They kill him, they flee, they go through the plains, presumably from Mahanaim, where Ishbosheth was crowned king, to Hebron. So he would have been going from north to the south. And then we read in verse 8, And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron, and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy, li thy life. And the Lord hath avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and of his seed. These men take the head of Ishbosheth and they bring it to David, citing him as Saul, his enemy. Now, these guys must not have been paying very good attention throughout the years. Or maybe they'd just forgotten how David had reacted to the death of Saul and Jonathan. 
and his kindness showed towards Saul and Jonathan, how he honored Saul and Jonathan when Saul and Jonathan were killed. Yes, Saul spent years chasing David, but David held no animosity. David, David held no ill will. When Saul died, David mourned for him. David, David even wrote a psalm praising Saul and Jonathan for their beauty and their might and their strength. That song was probably sung in Israel. I don't know where Rahab and, and Beana were during that time, but they really thought it was a good idea to kill Saul's son, to take his head and to bring it to David. But like with the Amalekites, and when, when we were uh, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1 several weeks ago, the Amalekite came and brought proof of Saul's death, if you recall. He brought the crown of Saul and he, 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 he took it off of Saul's dead body and he brought it to David. And remember he fabricated this story? He fabricated this story saying that he had killed Saul, but he had done it in mercy because Saul was going to die anyway and Saul asked him to. We know it's a lie because in 1 Samuel we read the actual account and there was no Amalekite there killing Saul. Saul died from his own hand because his armor bearer wouldn't do it. And so this Amalekite is lying, but he comes to David and he says, I saw him, he was dying, he had no chance of living, I killed him. The Amalekite's thinking the best of all worlds, right? Because then he's not actually guilty of the murder of Saul because, because Saul was going to die anyway. He's, he's actually being merciful to Saul. And so he's got the mercy part down, but then he also killed who he perceives to be David's enemy, Saul. So he's got the, the killing part down. He figures he's going to get something great from David. Do you remember what David did? He said, how dare you slay the Lord's anointed? And David killed that Amalekite for having presumed to, to kill the king of Israel to slay the Lord's anointed. So these men come and they say, we have Ishbosheth, Saul's son. Yeah, Saul, your enemy. We have his head. We killed him. Verses 9 through 11. David's answer is quite predictable, if you know David. And David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Bearthite, and said unto him, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. How much more? When wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed, shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? David recalls that which we just recalled in 2 Samuel 1, the instance of the Amalekites some seven years prior. But David says, you know, Reacha, Beana, and Rechab, your situation is far worse than his. In your situation, you went into an innocent man's house while he was sleeping. Someone who trusted you because you were one of his captains and you treasonously killed him. Said, if I took the life of the Amalekite who killed Saul, what do you think I'll do to you? And indeed, in consistency with his character, Verse 12 says, And David commanded his young men, and they slew them, and cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulchre of Abner in Hebron. The instrument of their crime was their hands and their feet. With their hands they had slain the king, with their feet they had fled. So the king had them slain, and then he had their hands cut off and their feet cut off and hung them over a pool in Hebron. It was intended to be a testimony to the nation of David's abhorrence of this act. Once again, testifying that it was not by his will that Ishbosheth was killed in such a manner. Just like in the last chap chapter, when Abner died, David proclaimed that all men will mourn, including his murderer, will mourn for him to prove that David did not intend for him to die. David was showing the nation that these treacherous murders, this is not how he acts. This is not how he is. He's not a treacherous man. He's not going behind people's backs. He is a man of principle. 
Now, this act is somewhat violent and uh, gruesome. It's not fun to think about the kind of brutality with which these men killed Ishbosheth or with which David killed them. And yet there is a quality in David's actions here that must be asserted, perhaps today more than ever. A quality of leadership which defines great leaders, which should undergird not only our understanding of what a good leader is, but also our understanding of who we should be in whatever leadership capacity we have been given. Everyone needs this message because no one knows what kind of leadership God will ask you to assume in the future. Parents are leaders. A boss is a leader. You may become a leader in the church. You may become a leader in the community. You may become a leader of a Bible study or a small group. You may become the leader of of some other collective. And the characteristic which David reveals in his actions is one that you ought to have if you want to be a good leader. Now, of course, his methods are, are deeply cultural, right? You're, you're not going to see too many people today killing men, cutting off their hands and feet, and hanging them over a pool for all to see. That's, that's a, a deeply cultural way of, of exhibiting his displeasure, but the, the concept. And that's what we're going to consider in two different perspectives, helping us understand a close connection between leadership and this concept of principles. But first I need to ask a question of us in order that we might understand. The question is this. What are principles? What are principles? That's what we're talking about tonight, so it would be helpful if we understood what they are, right? Webster's 1828 defines principles as the cause the source or the origin of something, that from which something proceeds, a foundation, that which supports an assertion or an action or a series of actions or of reasoning. Principles are the foundation upon which we operate. They are the underlying beliefs that govern how we see actions and events and also that govern how we respond to action and events. So the way you perceive something or how you act in response to something, that reveals your principles. Our principles form the very core of how we operate, what we will do, what we won't do, and why. Now, principles are formed in a person as they accept truth statements. As you accept things as true, those truths become the foundation of your principles. Now, whether those statements are actually true or not, if you agree with the statement, if you believe a statement is true, then you, you will begin to formulate principles on it. If I believed that the moon was made of cheese, it's not true, but I can formulate principles about how I regard the moon, what it is, and its function, based upon that regarded truth statement. Now that's a silly example, but I will formulate principles and understanding. Thoughts and actions will be formed on the basis of what I believe to be true. So if I accept the truth statement that breaking a law is wrong, then I begin to formulate principles in accordance with that truth statement. Now if I don't believe breaking a law is wrong, if I only believe it's wrong if you get caught, it's going to change the way I operate, right? But if I truly believe that breaking the law is wrong, then I'm going to formulate some principles. One of those principles will be that I won't steal. And I won't steal because stealing breaks the law. And I have accepted the truth, claim at least, that this is wrong. So I won't steal because I believe that breaking the law is wrong and stealing is breaking the law. My truth statement is breaking the law is wrong. My principle is I'm not going to steal. One of the principles will be that I won't speed, right? Because speeding is breaking the law. And if I believe that breaking the law is wrong, if I have accepted that truth statement, then I'm going to formulate a principle that says I won't speed. So it is the truth claim that I've accepted, and it undergirds the principles that I formulate. And it is the principles that I formulate that compel my thoughts, and my actions. 
I'm hoping that, that you're putting the, the relationships with these together. And this system is beautiful and it's robust in its simplicity. But of course, like all things, in life it doesn't always work very cleanly, does it? This idea of, of truth claims and principles. And why? Well, first, because not everyone's accepted truth claims are the same. Right? And so our principles aren't going to be the same because our truth claims aren't going to be the same. We as believers have accepted the truth claims of this book, compiled and completed some 2,000 years ago, based upon its own testimony of truth and the obvious marks of divine inspiration and preservation that rest upon it. This, these are our truth claims, and we formulate principles based upon these truth claims. But the majority of the world does not accept this book is true. And so the principles of the majority of this world are not built upon the same truth claims that ours are built. The Muslim will build his truth claims upon the Quran. The Jew will build his principles based upon the truth claims of the Old Testament law, oral tradition, and various written traditions. The materialist will build his principles on the truth claims of science and intellectual pseudoscience. And these principles will govern how he views the world around him, what he's willing to do and what he's not willing to do. So things don't always work themselves out cleanly because not everyone regards the same truth claims. But the more dangerous group than those that have different principles than you more dangerous than somebody who has assumed different truth claims and so has built different principles. A group which is consistently growing into a majority in our culture, which comprises the vast majority of, of those who lead in many contexts, are people who are governed by no principles at all. And this is our second group. They aren't governed by principles because they don't regard any set truth claims. Truth is a sliding scale to them. And if truth is a sliding scale, and it's based upon the moment, what's best for me, what's best, what I perceive to be right, what feels good, it's based upon the subjectivity of my emotions and how others are treating me, and so I'm living in this sliding scale of truth, how do you build principles on that? What principles are you going to build? Well, you're going to build the principles that work best for you for that day. And tomorrow, the principles, the principles of tomorrow may not be the principles of today because the truth claims of tomorrow aren't the truth claims of today. Today is Resurrection Sunday, and in the morning, along with throughout this past week, many of us have taken time to remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But prior to his death, there was a trial. And during that trial, Jesus stood before a governor, and that governor's name was Pilate. And as he stood before Pilate, Jesus said this in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. He was asserting the context within which he was operating. And Pilate responded this way. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. For this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So Jesus tells Pilate, I didn't come into this world to fight. He'll do that the second time around, but not the first. He said, I came into this world to bear witness to the truth. And if you know the truth, love the truth, you'll hear my voice. Pilate responded in John 18, 38, saying this. What is truth? What is truth? See, Pilate lived in a Roman world that was very academic, based upon the Greek culture before it. These 
This sliding scale of truth, this subjective morality that we're living in today, it's not the first time in history that that's been the case. And so Pilate hears Jesus say something that made him very uncomfortable. And what Jesus said is there is such thing as truth. That there is objective truth. That you can know the truth. That there are things that are right and things that are wrong. And Pilate was very uncomfortable with that. And his response to Jesus claiming to, to, to be the witness to the truth was simply to say, what is truth? It is one thing to say, I've listened to Jesus and he is not telling the truth than to formulate your principles based on some competing truth claim. It's another thing to not regard the truth or to not believe the truth can be defined. When you don't have any overarching reality, any foundation that forms the basis for how you understand the world, then you will have no principles. Your principles will be made up on the spot. They will not have any strength to them because they won't have any truth claims supporting them. And a person without principles is a person who is 100% unpredictable and untrustworthy. A person who lacks the moral courage of convictions. That is a dangerous, dangerous person. A man or woman without principles represents no one but himself. And if he represents no one but himself, then you can't trust him. You know, if a person has principles that compete with yours, at least you can understand their truth claims. You can understand the principles by which you, they live their lives. And then you can make a conscious decision as to whether or not to trust them and how far you want to trust them. How comfortable you are with them based upon the principles and the truth claims that they hold. And people can get along pretty good when they have competing truth claims but they have something to hang on to and they build principles upon it. But you know, when you have people that don't have principles because they don't regard truth claims, when the truth is whatever they feel, you just can't trust them. Because what they are today may not be what they are tomorrow. And what they were last week may not be what they are next week. So now as we think of leadership, the one characteristic of leadership we're talking about this evening. We've already talked about it in two different perspectives. And the perspective number one is this. Good leaders are governed by principled perspectives. Good leaders are governed by principled perspectives. Remember, we're talking about leadership. We're using David as the example here. We read in verse 8 of these two men, Baana and Rechab, coming to David and saying, The Lord hath avenged my king of uh, this day of Saul thine enemy. Well, David didn't agree. David recognized an inconsistency here. God doesn't use his people to kill the king of his people in cold blood. That isn't the hand of God. That's the work of other forces. David may have been working in opposition to Ishbosheth. There was a war going on between David and Ishbosheth, wasn't there? I mean, that's what we've been reading about a war going on between these two men. In an attempt to claim his God-given authority over the nation of Israel, David has been working in opposition to Ishbosheth. But David was willing to wait on God to give him the throne, because that's what God promised. David adhered to the truth claims of the law of God, truth claims that reflected the character of God. So he had built into his life principles of conduct that he was unwilling to breach. That even though Ishbosheth was his enemy, he was not going to treat him apart from the principles that he understood based upon the law of God. This man is his brother. This man is a fellow Israelite. David's of the tribe of Judah. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. They're both tribes in Israel. He doesn't want Ishbosheth dead. It's his brother. These are the principles that undergird David because David loved the Lord and he, he, he believed the word of God. God says the anointed of the Lord is not to be killed. David operated under that principle. He didn't seek the death of Saul. God says the authorities in our lives are to be obeyed, barring any sinful command. David operated under these principles in his life. David said, don't go to war with your brother. David operated under these principles. What Bayana and Rechab did reflected something entirely different, though, didn't it? These men, being trusted captains of Ishbosheth, killed him. And not just 
a man, but he, they killed their king. Leaders in Ishbosheth's kingdom, men who had promised to serve the king, killed the king for their own benefit. Because they said, a change is coming, right? Abner is dead. The winds are blowing in David's direction. Things are about to change, and we need to get in with David. How can we do that? Well, we've got this. In with Ishbosheth. We'll kill him. We'll bring David the head, and we'll get a seat at the head table. And David understood when they brought him the head, and they said, yeah, he was asleep, and we killed him. Took his head, and here we are. David understood a couple of things about these men. He understood that they were men that lacked principle. They were not governed by truth claims. They were governed by themselves. No adherence to truth. No, obedient, no adherence to obedience. No adherence to loyalty. Now, if they would do that to Ishbosheth, how long would it be until they did that to David? Right? If they could do that to Ishbosheth, their king. And David said, aha, now I've got a couple of good men in my, and a couple of new captains for my armies. How long before they got sick of David as their king? And the same thing happened. What would it take for them to betray David next time? See, these are not good leaders because they're men that lack principle. Men that lack principles are men who cannot be trusted to make decisions consistent with a set of truth claims. That means they're unpredictable. That means they're untrustworthy. And this applies across the board, believer or unbeliever alike. If a man has no principles, if he does not reflect loyalty to truth claims, then he cannot be a good leader. He will not be a good leader. A good leader is a principled leader. You know, I see this oftentimes. I see this a lot in the jail. I'm sitting across from someone. I have the privilege not just of speaking to men, but because of I get to go to the programs area uh, where it's monitored and I can speak to women in the jail. And I see it particularly in the women that I speak to where you know, they're hopping from deadbeat man to deadbeat man to deadbeat man. And when I ask them, well, how did you get into the relationship with this deadbeat man? I don't say that, but you know, how, how did you get in relationship with this deadbeat man? And they say, well, he left so-and-so and... Uh, he was having an affair with so-and-so, and then I ended up with him type idea. And I sit there and I say, and you expect him to treat you differently than he treated her and her and her before you? He's a man that lacks principle. And if he lacks principle with her and her and her, he's going to lack principle with you too. And that's what David saw in these men. He saw men that lacked principle. He couldn't trust them. Now, they needed to die anyway because they were murderers. But there's no way he was going to trust them in his kingdom. So a good leader is a leader that's governed by a principled perspective. But you don't want to just be a good leader, do you? I hope not. I hope you don't just want to be a good leader. I hope you want to be a godly leader. And a godly leader, to be a godly leader, we need to just slightly narrow our perspective a little bit on this. A good leader is governed by principled perspective. A godly leader is governed by a biblical perspective. A godly leader believes the truth claims of the Word of God. He builds his perspectives based upon these truth claims. He sees the world through the lenses of those truth claims. He doesn't change his perspectives, his principles, to match that which is easiest for him. He believes the truth of God's word and he sticks to it. He doesn't change his perspective to match his best interests. He believes what is right. That means if you want to be a godly leader, your perspective needs to be biblically principled. When someone asks you, what do you believe about, dot, 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 a godly leader believes what God's word says and lives according to it. When someone asks you to support their decisions and actions, a godly leader supports what is consistent with God's word. A godly leader does not hold loyalties to a man above God. A godly leader does not hold loyalties to culture above God. A godly leader is a principled leader, and he reflects those principles in his perspective on life. Now, our second characteristic here of this concept of principles. 
First, good leaders are governed by principled perspective. Second, good leaders manifest principled actions. A good leader doesn't just see the world through the lens of consistent principles governed by definitive truth claims. A good leader acts upon those principles. He acts in a consistent way upon those principles. He is governed in his actions by definitive truth claims. David was seven years removed from the death of that Amalekite who claimed to have killed Saul. Seven years ago, Saul died. The Amalekite came and said, I killed him. And David said, your blood will be your consequence. David was probably something like 10 years removed from the first time he had an opportunity to kill Saul in the cave. When Saul went in and the men, David and his men were hiding around the outside of the cave. And David's men said, now's your chance. All of his guards are outside. Kill him. And David said, I will not kill him. He's a man of principle. He will not lay hand upon the Lord's anointed. He believes the truth claims of the word of God. And God says, you cannot do this and be guiltless. So he didn't do it, even though he had the chance. So for 10 years now, it's been 10 years since David refused to kill Saul. Seven years since he killed the Amalekite for killing Saul. Abner is dead. The throne of Israel is so close. David can taste it. Abner had even come before his death and said, David, we're going to give you the kingdom. David was right there. But David's actions were the same. He didn't say, well, it's been so long, and yeah, I really wanted the throne, and I was sick of Ishbosheth, and I didn't know how it was going to work anyway, so thanks, thanks guys. I'll, I'll overlook at this once. For 10 years, at the least, David's perspective remained consistent, and his actions remained consistent. How is that possible? That a man can remain consistent in action for that long? Well, because his actions aren't based on expedience. They're based on principle. And if you have an unchanging truth claim that you hold on to, then your principles aren't going to change. They're going to remain consistent. So David's actions remain consistent. This consistency is not because David was seeking political goodwill. It was not because he was something special. It's because he believed the unchanging truths of God's word. He rested in the character of God. He was governed by those principles. And so he punished the wicked in accordance with those principles. Maybe a difficult thing to consider, the way he did it, but it was consistent. And that's what made David, it's one of the things that made David a good leader. A good leader makes decisions the same way. You can trace his decisions through a line of principles. When a man's decisions are everywhere or on the board and he's saying one thing and doing another and he's done something different than what he's saying or doing in a time past, he has no principles. He is not a good leader. Now, that doesn't mean a leader can't change his mind, can't grow in understanding. But if he does do that, the good leader's actions will reflect a change in principles that he has changed based upon a change of truth claims. In other words, if you see a, a leader and his actions have changed, trace it to his principles and trace that to his truth claims. And see how his truth claims, his understood truth claims have changed. You know, a leader accepts Christ as his savior, which we've seen before in American politics, you've seen before in various, and, and things change for that leader. Not recently, but, you know, in years past. But you can trace his change through his perspective, through his principles, down to his truth claim change. You can trace that. That's safe. But if a man is across the board and anywhere and everywhere, he has no principles. Secular or religious, good leaders act on principles, not expedience. Good leaders leave a consistent record of choices based upon definitive truth claims. They don't change their actions to adapt to personal advantage or to private goals. And the leader who does this fails to be a good leader. But you don't want to be a good leader, do you? I hope not. I hope you want to be a godly leader. So again, let's 
narrow the field a little bit with our statement. Good leaders manifest principled actions. Godly leaders are governed by biblically principled. They manifest biblically principled actions. A godly leader believes the truth claims of the Bible. He bases his actions on those truth claims. He sees the world through the lenses of those truth claims. He doesn't change his actions to match what is expedient. He does what is right. He doesn't change his actions to, to match his best interests. He does what is right. That, <clears throat> excuse me. If you want to be a good, godly leader, your actions need to be biblically principled. When those who follow you see what you do, it ought to be consistent with what you claim to believe. A godly leader does not hold loyalties to man above God. A godly leader does not hold culture above God. A godly leader is a principled leader, and he reflects those principles in the way he acts and in what he does. Now, these characteristics of a good leader affect us in all manner of ways today mentioned already that the nation is in the process of deciding a new leader as president and part of our Congress in the next six months. The good leader is not the man who says the best things, but the man whose actions and statements are backed up by principles and truth claims. If a man's statements conflict with his principles, no matter how interesting, intriguing, or alluring his statements, he cannot be a good leader. He may make some good decisions, but that won't make him a good leader. A good leader must be a principled leader, for if he's not a principled leader, he is untrustworthy and unpredictable. Now, the stakes get even higher when it comes to the church and the family. We spend all this time and all of this fanfare over politics and, and the leader of this country, but you know what? The stakes are higher for the man that steps behind a pulpit every week than they are for the man that's sitting behind the, oval, the desk in the Oval Office. Because the pulpits of this country truly are dictating the direction of our culture. Government is just culture. Government is a part of a bigger system that historically is opposed to God. But the family and the church matter more because it is through the family and the church that society and culture can be most deeply influenced. If you want to influence culture, don't elect a president to do it. Godly churches and godly families will change a culture. And that means we need our fathers and our pastors to be good, godly leaders. Men of principle. Men who love biblical truth. Men whose principles are based on biblical truth. Men who live by those principles consistently. Mothers who believe what the Bible has to say and obey what the Bible has to say and are principled enough to live what they're trying to teach their children. Pastors who love the Word of God, who know the Word of God, who believe the Word of God, and who are principled enough that they don't say something from behind the pulpit and go home and do the opposite. We need principled leaders in family, principled leaders in the church. I stick to those three this evening specifically because those are the three God-ordained institutions. But we know that it goes beyond that, right? In any leadership position, and even if you're not in a leadership position, you ought to be a man or a woman of principle. Because whether or not you are in a formal leadership position, when you get out there in the world and you interact with people, people see your life. They see the principles by which you live. And as they see your principles reflected in your actions and your truth claims reflected in your principles, it can impact them for Christ. What we need today are some consistent Christians because they're not as prevalent as they ought to be. Some Christians who are not afraid to live according to this book. Some Christians who are willing to identify the truth claims of Scripture and know that culture isn't going to like it when you believe some of these things and know that culture isn't going to understand when you choose to do some of these things. And yet you understand the truth claims, so you build the principles and then you live consistently. Because that's what it takes to be a good leader and to be a good follower of Christ.
Now, as believers, we above all men and women ought to have principles because we have absolute truth. If our children, if our society do not see us act in loyalty to the truth, then why should they believe anything that we say? If, if we are not living what we say we believe, then why do we believe it? And why should anyone else? The best leaders among us are not perfect men and women. The best leaders among us are principled men and women. Men who know what is truth, women who know what is truth, and men and women who live what they know. May God help us to be those kind of leaders, those kind of Christians this evening. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joint and marrow of the bones. We thank you that you are a God of truth, that we can know the truth, and as your word tells us, that the truth can make us free. We ask that this evening, I pray that every man and woman in this room would be determined to identify truth claims, to build principles, and then to live in consistency with those principles, to be principled men and women. I pray particularly for our leaders that we would see as David was a man of principle reflecting consistency throughout his life that we would find leaders and be leaders who are principled. I pray for our country as we even read in 1 Timothy 2 this evening that we ought to do. Pray that above all else that come the election in November we might be able to rejoice at least in this, that the man who is in office is a man of principle. Pray for our churches. Pray that you would be raising up godly men of principle to guide them. Pray for our families, that mothers and fathers would be men and women of principle to guide their children into what is right. And as we do so, Father, we know that we have the blessing and the favor of you, for it is according to your word. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.